Masaryk Cowan and uh, at the park to um, gather together to march with OCAP from this location to an abandoned building which will be abandoned no more. If we're going to develop a movement to challenge global capitalism, it has to be a global working class movement. We have taken it, we will keep it. You give it or you got it. We will keep on coming back. We will keep on putting the heat under your asses until we win. Welcome to Spring Radio, a podcast for socialist ideas in action. I'm Sarah Shaheep, Spring member and co-host of the Spring Radio podcast. Today's episode is about the three-decade-long anti-poverty movement in Ontario, led by the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty, or better known as OCAP. OCAP was an organization with a direct membership of people drawn primarily from low-income communities that would use methods of collective action to develop power for the poor which included people on social assistance and welfare, refugees and undocumented people, and unhoused folks. OCAP employed what is known as a direct action casework approach, meaning the group would address individual cases of people having to navigate existing bureaucratic systems as an opportunity to expose the state's role in managing the interests of the capitalist class. It also served as a way of understanding poverty as a direct result of systems that value profits over people. The organization was co-founded by John Clark, a British-born trade unionist turned anti-poverty activist. Clark drew from his experience with the London Union of Unemployed Workers to orient OCAP towards militancy. The group became well-known for some of their more controversial tactics, which ranged from mock evictions of MP offices to large public demonstrations and faux tent cities that forced local politicians to confront the crisis of homelessness. Many, including John Clark himself, have debated the effectiveness of these tactics and whether they serve the long-term goals of building an anti-capitalist movement from below. We're here at uh, Masaryk Cowan and uh, at the park to um, gather together to march with OCAP from this location to an abandoned building which will be abandoned no more. It's going to be reclaimed, it's going to be renovated, it's going to be turned into something useful, affordable housing and community center. off the streets of Toronto and we're very concerned about the uh, the money that's been spent on the World Youth Day rather than on providing essential services such as housing for the poor. In 2002, OCAP activists took over an abandoned house in an action that became known as Pope Squat. That is because the occupation of the vacant home was timed with Pope John Paul II's visit to Toronto. Seven days into the demonstration, Toronto City Council voted 23 to 6 in favor of a motion that declared that they would request the provincial government to transfer the title of that property to the City of Toronto for the specific purpose of creating affordable housing units. In this episode, Spring members Krishna Saravanamutu and Adam Lee sit down with John Clark over lunch to discuss lessons from OCAP's years of militancy and how it built a coalition of organizers from varying left tendencies 
and developed a basis of unity. Later, we will look at what movements remain active and are carrying the legacy of advancing workers' economic struggle and lifting people up from poverty. How did OCAP manage to bring together uh, so many different uh, perspectives or shades of the left under one banner? Well, um, I think by I think by having a sort of a having a sort of a broadly anti-capitalist perspective, mm. but recognizing that there were things that we just you know had to uh, there were things that we couldn't proceed with if we were going to maintain that unity. Mm. Electoralism was always the big one. You know, I mean, mm. OCAP has sort of got people tend to think of OCAP as being anti-electoral, mm. but that's not really true. Mm. Uh, we mm. just sort of took a position that, that that we couldn't possibly unite everybody we had under our umbrella mm. if we were going to involve ourselves directly in electoral politics. So we, right. just, we just stayed out of it. But there were certainly, you know, OCAP members campaigning for the NDP at election time. Right, right. And so it was at that time a strategically important unity to to maintain. Yes, I, I think so. I think so, and uh, and and it's I think also important to recognise that. Um, I mean, after the first very initial few years of OCAP, what really changed it was an infusion of young people who came out of the anti-globalisation movement, mm. and that was what was really decisive mm. at that time, uh, leading up to Seattle and whatnot. Right. There was this increasing mobilization and the best of those people uh, didn't want to engage in pure the term always was always used at the time summit hopping mm. uh, people mm. wanted to people wanted an ongoing way of organizing right. so a lot of people many of them with an anarchist perspective right. uh, came into the organization right and, and I think that there are some lessons to be drawn today especially with the, the crisis um, that poor people low-income people, working class people are enduring today uh, in this city across the province um, there's a need I think for a strategic kind of unity and common front uh, yeah do you have any thoughts on on how uh, or why even that's that's something that should be entertained um, I, I mean I think it's really decisive but I, I think to look at it you've got to recognize that I mean the OCAP period was one in which certainly there was a there was a there was a, a sharpening neoliberal agenda that we were up against mm-hmm. i mean that's unquestionably true and that included the period of the sort of thatcher reagan like phase of the of the mike harris government mm-hmm. where the whole process was suddenly accelerated mm-hmm. but overall i mean I, I would say that the period of, that, that marked most of ocap's existence was by comparison today a relatively incremental process of crisis and and, 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 and austerity. Mm. I mean, I think things today are much worse, much more serious than during than during the OCAP period. How so? Um, <clears throat> well, I mean, I think if we look at all of the elements of the, I mean, the term being thrown around is polycrisis, <laughs> and 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 I think that's has quite a bit of validity to it. I mean, you've got. Um, You've got now a situation where economically things look pretty gruesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the possibility of a major downturn is there, even the one that's largely induced at this particular point. You know, so they have not they've not been able to solve the crisis within the system. I mean, the present cost of living crisis is largely attributable to the 
to the supply shocks that came after the uh, after the pandemic. Well, the disruption to the supply chain that the pandemic created is like nothing compared to what droughts and heat waves and floods and you know. I mean, so I mean, yeah. I mean, it's 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 an absolutely. I mean, the class struggle is becoming one of survival at this point. Right. So I think the need to organise in ways that are very different. Right. I mean, what we've got to create is, I think, the kind of perspective that OCAP was looking forward, but it's got to be a mass movement. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it can't possibly exist on the basis of a, a good show by a few thousand people. It's going right. to be a real mass movement. And I think the conditions are there for that to be built. So going back to the 90s, so I mean, we're now in a, in a political, geopolitical situation, end of history kind of moment. OCAP is, is you know, forming in, in the 1990s. We're also seeing things like the OCA crisis happening. Mm-hmm. Um, how did that influence the debates that were happening within the organization? Well, um, I mean, the Oka crisis specifically, uh, I, I think the struggle of the struggles of indigenous people um, actually were one of the big influences on OCAP mm. to, a, to a huge degree. OCA happened when OCAP was just getting started, but we... We linked up with uh, Mohawks from the Bay of Quinty, and uh, it was a real, I, uh, for me, it was a huge, I mean, I didn't grow up in this country, and I've sort of had a pretty, at that point, sort of like early 1990s, I'd say I had a pretty limited understanding of, of you know, Canada as a settler colonial state. I mean, I recognised it, but I didn't really understand it very well. And I remember a group of Mohawks came down from the Bay of Quinty and their band, their band council was evicting people and they wanted our support. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, I mean, I think it's a really important issue, but, you know, like we're not a, we're not an indigenous organization and, you know, for us to sort of be intervening. And, mm-hmm. and so this, uh, Sean Brandt, the, who, um, who later became an OCAP organizer, he said to me, well, he said, with all due respects, I think you need to understand that it is your issue because mm-hmm. the colonial uh, the colonial leadership that has been the colonial uh, appointed leadership that has been imposed on us is part of the oppression that we're facing. You, the notion of you know the Quinty Band Band Council is just a, a group of you know regular regular indigenous people. It's just you know he said this is part of you know you need to understand. And I sort of like I took that to heart. And I think that uh, I think that uh, you know the recognition that that OCAP was an anti-capitalist organisation, people understood the degree to which that means you have to actually, if we're going to defeat capitalism, we've got to defeat colonialism in this country at the, at the same time. Right, you know? right. So these are not uh, competing projects. These projects are deeply interconnected. No, absolutely. I mean, I, I would say the only viable anti-colonialism is anti-capitalism hmm. and vice versa. That, uh you know, brings like something else that I think is so interesting about OCAP. I'd like to learn a little more about, you know, OCAP was also in a lot of communities and a lot of places and having a lot of discussions that it seems like a lot of other groups weren't having or like reaching communities that maybe like other groups weren't like really trying to reach. Um, I think that was important to those of us who had I mean, not everybody was active in OCAP, had much of a concept of the working class. I mean, there were people who had radical ideas, but sort of really just saw the poor as a very distinct entity. Those of us that 
approached it from a more working class perspective, saw the work, saw the poor, the poorest people as a as a, as a, a part of what has happened to the working class itself, mm-hmm. and, and sort of viewed it that way. Um, so yeah, that, that broader was, conception of the working class. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the great ones. There's a um, man I know in the UK, uh, Kevin Ovenden, who's with uh, I write a column for Counterfire. Right. Uh, right. I remember a counterfeit, but I wrote a column for him. And um, Kevin wrote a piece on uh, something that Rosa Luxemburg intervened on that I thought was really a, a great example. So this is Berlin in the early 1900s. Mm-hmm. There's a, a, a great, a big hostel where homeless people are fed tainted food and a massive outbreak of food poisoning takes place and a huge number of people die. And Rosa Luxemburg writes this piece just savaging the uh, the uh, social democratic deputies in the Reichstag and some of the trade union leaders for the way they'd approach this. And she points out that you presented this as if this was some, you know, some sort of social commentary issue and these were just these bedraggled victims who'd, uh, you know, who'd... Uh, who'd just been the victims of an injustice, but these people are part of the working class. Mm. This is what's happening to the working class. This is, you know, where the working class is being driven to, and, mm. you know, and, and, and she approached it from a, from a class perspective. I, I think that was, like, the worst element of the, of the, of the worst element of the bureaucratization of the trade union movement is to, first of all, you have these compartmentalised collective agreements and locals that, that sort of see the that tend to be isolated there isn't even a broader struggle of employed workers but mm. but there's no sense of you know there's no sense at all of uh, no sense at all of a of a, a general working class interest and the poorest people I mean, people on welfare for god's sake or homeless people to try to suggest that this is part of the same class as right. the people that work on the assembly line at general motors is right you know not even within their frame of reference right but right. but it is part of it and it has a huge impact i mean that's what it's all about i mean marx's concept of the uh, industrial reserve army wasn't a fanciful one I mean, you know these these things all relate and how much progress can be made by workers Mm-hmm. Is not just, I mean, certainly working class is very polarised in terms of its income and what have you, but there is a general movement backwards and forwards by the working class and you can't just leave people lying in poverty and misery and despair and think that everything's going to be all right for the better paid workers because right. it's not. And and we do so at our own expense. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And I think I think the implication of, of, of your um, analysis, John, is that... Um, it's more than just a moral question, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's much more than moralism. Why is it that we, um, why is it that we resist state violence uh, against people that are forced to live in encampments? Why is it that we are calling for um, the abolition of prisons? Right? Mm-hmm. These are these are more than just moral questions. These are fundamentally strategic questions about how to actually attack capitalism. That's true. You know the tactics that OCAP took up. Right. I mean, we we did some very important hard-hitting actions that were that I certainly don't apologize for I think they were fantastic but I think we learned rather late the notion of you know patient organizing and Mm. building within communities I look at some of the tenant organizing that's taking place now Mm. uh, and see the degree to which door knocking and conversations and you know patient patient organizing work Mm. has has taken place uh, on a model that's 
much better than OCAPS ever was, I think. OCAP began operating in 1990, coming out of a successful mobilization of militant anti-poverty activists that helped replace the Liberal Premier in Ontario, David Peterson, also known as Poverty Premier, with the new NDP provincial government led by Bob Ray. People may know Bob Ray more recently as the Canadian ambassador to the United Nations, who abstained during the Security Council vote on October 27th to advocate for a humanitarian pause in Israel's genocidal attack on Gaza. Bob Ray's government got elected in Ontario, writing the strength of movements, but as soon as they took office, the party's support for anti-poverty movements dwindled. Among other things, the Ray government introduced the social contract, which significantly harmed the working class by freezing wages and imposing austerity on Ontario's public sector workers. This is the political terrain in which OCAP was organizing in the 90s. So I'm wondering, John, like when we go back to the 1990s and, and we, we now see, you know, the NDP government um, basically betray, betray the, the people that brought it into power. Um, and then subsequently we see um, the beginning of the Harris era, the Harris or Eves era. Where was OCAP at at that point? What was the kind of strategic tactical debates that were happening? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, be necessary to say that I think OCAP played actually a very important role uh, that's been not properly uh, not properly acknowledged or understood uh, in terms of the uh, in terms of the uh, the Ray government. So in comes the Ray government. I remember, I just actually somebody just found me the footage mm. of Ray when it immediately won, uh, being asked by a reporter. Well, the business community must be in real trouble now or something. And he goes, oh, no, not at all. <laughs> but he, he goes completely overboard on it in the sense that, I mean, not only does he assure the business community got nothing to worry about, but he, he actually says, internationally, I'm part of a movement that works cooperatively with business, you know, like, mm. <laughs> ever mm. since we voted for war credits in the Reichstag, you know. Right. <laughs> you know <laughs> 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 well, you didn't quite say that, but... But, uh, but uh, it's a different kind of virtue signaling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, but the point was is that that I mean Ray Ray's betrayals were horrible. He ended up attacking public sector unions. Mm-hmm. It was awful. Welfare it was vile. But so we what we were beginning to grapple with was there's obviously the hardcore bureaucratic steel worker leadership people who are going to support, I mean, Ray could abolish habeas corpus and they wouldn't do anything. I mean, they, mm. you know, that's just them. But there's going to be a movement. People are going to get more and more upset. So right. how do we how do we play with that? How right. do we start to, be, to build an opposition? Right. So I remember one of the first things we did was the NDP had a convention and we... Uh, actually, I, I put forward the idea because I'd been at... Uh, at protests in Britain directed against the TUC leadership. What you always do is you don't call it a protest, you call it a lobby. 
because you know you don't mm. want to say you're you're protesting union representatives. You know, right. so you 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 call it a lobby and you you have signs, but you give out leaflets and you present it as you know. So we did the same. We did a, a lobby of the NDP convention, and rather than have you know uh, signs saying you know. Socialism and words and fascism in deeds. Or something. <laughs> we had uh, we had uh, we had signs that said things like you know you promised you know like, like, right. like so that there was this sort of sense of the the disappointed base that was being alienated and tried to put it that way. I think we did a lot through the kind of stuff we were doing to to um, to sort of begin to begin to raise the possibilities for challenging the NDP government mm. that made a difference. I think that was really significant. I remember one of our protests, Ray coming over and saying in my ear, this is not necessary. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so that was, uh, that was important. And then in comes, in comes Harris, I mean, set up. I mean, the NDP really functioned as his warm-up act, really. Right. How, how did the NDP in some ways... Uh, kind of create the conditions for the Harris government to take over? Well, I think, what, I mean, while there was a significant level of mobilisation against against the NDP, um, against the NDP government's betrayals, um, it was still confused mm-hmm. and there was a huge amount of demoralisation. I mean, the NDP party itself, its membership absolutely disintegrated. I don't remember the figures, but they were appalling. I mean, the party suffered, uh, probably Starmer has outdone them in Britain at the moment, but, you know, the the, the NDP's membership just collapsed. So, uh, you know, I remember I I was in Oshawa just when the election was going to happen, where Harris was elected, and some NDP hack gets up and says something to the effect of, you know, you know, save us. I mean, you know, we're bastards, we're terrible, but you, something worse than us is coming in. So, you know, like, you know, like, and, uh, and uh, that was really the, 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 there was this huge sense of demoralisation. Uh, Harris captured, uh, you know, uh, captured a definite right-wing mood, hmm. uh, but, but he did so entirely on the basis of the, the the incredible demoralization that was created by the uh, created by the uh, by the NDP I mean when they were first elected their agenda for people which was a very very modest perspective but but it was enormously popular I mean they had mm. you know if they had actually rather than just capitulate if they'd have actually I mean, it's to imagine the impossible but if they'd actually seriously mobilized and and, and and asked for you know I mean they were sort of business-led protests at Queen's Park. I mean, they could have been just blown out of the water by by working class mobilization in support of a of a of a positive agenda. But mm, but they mm. just folded so badly. I mean it's I mean it's been it happens all the time. I mean it's just yeah. such a standard thing. I, I fear it's happening at City Hall right now. So some of the limits then of electoralism yeah. uh, and, and why uh, we shouldn't put too much of our hope uh, or energy, perhaps, into electing the right politician or the right government. Um, and, and so we went from Ray Days to the Common Sense Revolution. And I remember that period because I was growing up in that period. And I was yeah. living in a community housing project. And, you know, we subsisted off of welfare. Yeah. And there were massive, massive cuts to welfare. I remember those days very well. Sure. Uh, what did we start to see with people... Uh, involved in OCAP, people within OCAP's orbit? What were the kind of debates that were happening about how to confront this? Yeah, I mean, we, 
again, I think I think OCAP played a, a, a really important role at that particular time um, because when Ray was elected, um, I mean, you had the steelworker pink paper crowd who their position was that, you know, we've just got to work for another NDP government. There's nothing we can do, you know, mm-hmm. get through these grim years. Um, but even amongst uh, the sort of more left-leaning trade union leaders, there was a perspective that Ray, that a lot of our members voted for him, there's nothing we can do, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And so it, the initial lead in, in fighting against Harris actually did come from the community, which mm-hmm. played a big role. There was an organisation that was an ad hoc organisation went under the name of Embarrass Harris that <laughs> initially, initially started things out. And then OCAP organised several actions, a march on the legislature. And we organised a march from Regent Park to Rosedale, to the home of the Lieutenant Governor, who would be signing the uh, the welfare cut into effect. So you went from one of the, the most impoverished communities right. into one of the richest communities That's uh, right. in the city. That's right. And, okay. and we were sitting on some research that showed that, that uh, I mean, this was, this was the early 90s, right. uh, uh, if you looked at the tax cuts going to Rosedale and the welfare cuts, in, in effect, a million dollars a month were being taken from the region park and given to Rosedale. Right. So uh, so we, we sort of went to ask for our money back in that sense. Right. And um, that was a really powerful action that had a really great uh, a great effect. So some, so I think the fact that there was mobilisation did lead, did bring up the level of trade union struggle ultimately to the days of action. No, no, no not for a moment trying to suggest that, you know, not being ridiculous here, but I, I do think the fact that there was a significant community mobilising speeded up the process and created greater possibilities mm. for a broader working class mobilisation. And in terms of this transition period from Ray to Harris, because as we know, you know, you don't just organise when you don't like the person who's in office or when, like, you know, the wrong party, quote unquote, is there. Uh, so in this transition from Ray to Harris, like, uh, what changed for OCAP? Were there changes in terms of like, I guess, like the feeling or the strategy or in terms of really like how you saw your role? Well, I mean, we saw our role as, uh, I mean, I mean, it's a much more naked struggle than it, than it had been with, with, uh, with, uh, with Ray. But we saw our, we saw the need to just to really advance the struggle in every possible way we could uh, to first of all fight to take forward the notion of disruptive collective action in ways that would that would try to limit what Ray could do on the poverty front but also to try to set an example for others to follow and create a kind of a model of resistance. John Clark retired from OCAP in 2019 and four years later in May 2023 OCAP disbanded momentarily leaving a vacuum in the anti-poverty movement at a time when rents are skyrocketing, wages are stagnant, and inflation has hit a 40-year high. According to a July 2023 report from the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, the hourly earning of a full-time worker in Ontario would need to be $25.96 an hour just to rent a one-bedroom apartment. Ontario's current minimum wage is only $16.55 an hour. While OCAP has folded, the struggle against capitalism, state-sanctioned poverty, and artificial borders live on. It lives in the form of vibrant, multiracial movements for decent work, for permanent immigration status for all, 
for Housing for All. For Spring Radio's inaugural episode, we covered one of those struggles against rent exploitation. If you haven't listened to it, please check it out. And if you're looking to get more involved, here are some avenues. In Ontario and Nova Scotia, join the Justice for Workers campaign that is demanding a $20 an hour minimum wage that would help millions of low-income workers navigate the skyrocketing cost of living. Across Canada, you can support the Status for All campaign that is pushing for permanent resident status for all undocumented migrants. This would lift half a million people from poverty overnight. In Toronto, you can take action with 230 Fight Back and York Southwestern Tenants Union, who are fighting greedy landlords every day. This is by no means an exhaustive list, but what is important for socialists is to get organized and be rooted in movements. We are in an unprecedented time of austerity, crisis, and climate catastrophe, and only working class self-activity can achieve change. With that, I will leave you with these thoughts from John Clark himself. Any of the issues that we're addressing, I mean, uh, have to be informed by a, by a sense of internationalism. Mm. We have to support the struggles that are going on in other countries. We have to learn from those struggles. We mm. have to be able to give support. But we're going to have to more and more in this period of incredible crisis. I mean, I think we're going to have to, we're going to, have to think through... Uh, how we actually how we actually advance mm-hmm. together and support each other mm-hmm. and that comes up particularly with regards to the division between the so-called global north and south i mean any if we're addressing any of the questions that we're talking about the cost of living crisis mm. well the cost of living crisis is very real in toronto but but for god's sake what does it mean in pakistan if we're going to deal with with climate we've got to deal with the fact that the impacts on the global south are going to be are already so disastrous and extreme the question of climate refugees mm. these things are going to be so such massive questions all these things have to be have to be thought through but we have to if we're going to develop a movement to challenge global capitalism it has to be a global working class movement this episode was recorded on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. The episode was produced by Carly McPhee, Krishna Saravanamutu, Adam Lee, and me, Sarah Shaheed, with original music by Benjamin Bilgen. Our gratitude to John Clark for giving us his time and wisdom. You can read and listen to more from Spring and find out how to join the Spring Socialist Network at springmag.ca.